Well, good morning. I want you to notice one specific thing. I didn't get the table. I got a music podium. Just saying. I'm not taking it personal, Troy. I'm not taking notes or pictures or nothing. I'm not hurt in any way. I'm fine. I promise I won't be too silly or too goofy. I know that's a lot to ask. But um, I've been here for a few years, and this is the first time you've actually seen me on this stage and sharing a message from God's Word. Lord, help us all. Really? (laughs) And so uh, I've got many years bottled up. So we have 2,423 points to make this morning. So buckle up. I'm a kid of the seventies and eighties. And in that time, this amazing thing happened in technology. The greatest gift to mankind came about the video game console. It was awesome. And one of the first ones was an Atari 2600. Look at that bad boy. Isn't that awesome? It is amazing. And the graphics were so lifelike. Look at that. Those look like real planes. I mean, I I can't tell. I mean, is this Top Gun, Maverick, or what? And that's not a finger pointing up. That's supposed to be a cannon shooting things. Anyways, it was it was crazy. But the coolest thing about this video game system is the last button on the far right, on your left, is a reset button. So it didn't matter what happened because, you know, the Atari games were not the greatest at code. And if you got stuck, you could hit the reset button and it would take you back to the beginning of that game system or that get section. Or more reality, you just stink at the game, you can go backwards. And it wasn't a refresh to start over or a pause, it was a reset. So you actually had all the knowledge of what you were about to face and you got to do over. And so I want to talk about hitting reset today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to take a minute to get there because Troy told me last week that he thought I had 10 more minutes on the stage and I was very short. So I'm going to take advantage of my long-windedness and I'm going to get you to Acts 2 in a few moments. You ready? Here we go. God created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, cast from the garden. God encounters Abraham, initiated that conversation and initiated a covenant relationship with Abraham and said, you are going to be my chosen people. Joseph saves the world later because there was coming famine and moved his people to to, uh, Egypt. The chosen people become slaves. God calls Moses and Moses brings them out of slavery. And before Joshua takes them into the promised land, you have the five first books of the Old Testament, the books of law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's everything you need to have a relationship with God in those five books. And then through the years, God had to send judges and kings and prophets to help guide the people back to him, the one who initiated the relationship in the first place. And then after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. They don't hear from God. They've got his word, but they don't hear from him. And what happens in that time period is fascinating. Because you've got the first five books. It gives you everything you need to know to follow and have a relationship with God. But then the people begin to change yet again. And while we can 
look at the text and, and just shake our heads at how the Israelites seem to be so thick-headed through Scripture that God redeems them time and time again. It's at this point, as we're approaching the time of Christ, that we discover a few things. Tradition became more important than a relationship that God established with them through the covenant of Abraham. The people's references or their preferences or their truth became more important than the truth of God and his purpose. Even worse, their apathy polluted their calling to be God's holy people. Sound familiar? See, within the law, God had given the Israelites instructions, but also gave the religious leadership instructions on how to do faith. But over that time, they themselves began to look at their own truth to the point that it gets to Matthew 22. And the Sadducees begin to debate Christ and and Christ very firmly explains to them how life really is. So then the Pharisees step in and decide they're going to try to debate the creator, to debate the Messiah, to debate the one who wrote the book. And so they ask this question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema. It's something they pray twice a day. It's something that they already know the answer to, but he's giving them something very simple. Then he goes on to quote Leviticus 19. And he puts those two verses together. And that love that Lord your God is not a romantic love. It's not that kind of love. It's, it's a complete yielding of oneself to God. And then to love my neighbor like myself is not to enter into any other relationship other than being useful and of service to mankind. To put others before myself. And then he he seals the deal. I mean, look at verse 40. It says, upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus wraps it up nice and tight so that there's no question. Now, you would think at some point when these people are looking for their Messiah, that in the miracles that Jesus performs, in the words that go beyond his years or beyond the perception of what would have been a carpenter, the people of Israel would have stopped and said, hey, let's hit a reset. Apparently, we're not getting this right. We've, we've made some assumptions that aren't true. But instead, there's very few that do this. There's very few that grasp on and realize the Messiah is completely opposite of what I pictured. It's not who I pictured or how I pictured it. And it's with those few at the end of Christ's life after he's resurrected and he's about to ascend into heaven. His last words to us are in Matthew 28. And Jesus spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to follow all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. These are not political statements. These are not social commentaries. This isn't a new church program that we can enact and be a part of and get engaged and excited about. This is a lifestyle and and a commissioning. This is a command and a, and a, a, a call out. 
He's telling us that we are to completely love God, completely love others, and go make disciples. I mean, it's three bullet points. It's the execution that's incredibly hard, right? To daily yield to God, to put others before me, to go make disciples. Well, heck, if I'm going to go make disciples, I've got to actively be a disciple. The problem is, is when the people were unwilling to do this, they became comfortable with the status quo. They become comfortable with the way life is. And once they accepted that, they accepted the fact that they were destined to become stagnant, face death and decay. Because they weren't willing to reset and say, wait a second, I've missed the mark. And so it doesn't have to be this way. If you'll turn to Acts 2, 42 through 47, I want to look at these words for a few minutes And share with you what God's put on my heart. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. They would sell their property and possessions and share with them all, to the extent that anyone who had need... And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 2 actually begins at Pentecost. And the followers of Christ are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it's like a mighty rushing wind and tames, flames are appearing above their heads and they're indwelled with the Spirit and, and the community hears it and they come in mass to see what's going on and they come out and the disciples are accused of being drunk, they're accused of being crazy and Peter finally stands up and he's the rock that Christ predicted. And he says, we're not drunk. You see, this is the story of Jesus. God loves us so much that he created us, but then we fell away from him. God sent Jesus Christ and we killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And the people were cut to their hearts and they said, what do we do? And and Peter says, accept Christ and be saved. And 3,000 people accepted Christ that day. And as Pentecost came to an end, they began to disperse back to their own communities. But the remnant that remained behind Jerusalem is what verses 42 and following is talking about. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. These disciples have gone through a great loss. They lost their leader. I mean, they had a shepherd for three years who was Christ. I mean, about the best pastor anybody could hope for. He's gone. And now here they are. The church looking to move forward. And it changes their perspective. It doesn't say that they got rid of their scripture. It doesn't say they started over. What does it say? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If we're going to be the people God called us to be, we've got to place ourselves in a discipleship relationship. We've got to be discipled by someone and discipling someone else. That's the command. It's that simple. Yet it is so much work and so hard, right? I mean, we're busy. Life gets in the way. You don't understand, Wayne. Your kids don't do anything. It's true. Amen. Hallelujah. But we're active. We have all these things to do. 
We don't have time for ourselves. I'm telling you with all sincerity. If we are not loving God, loving people, and making disciples, are we the church? I mean, they had to be busy. I mean, the guys back then wore long dresses instead of pants, and they got dressed faster. So that saved some time. But, I mean, they had to travel wherever they went, by foot or by donkey or by horse. I mean, they had to go do things. They had to live life. And sometimes, at least for me, I get lost in that sometimes. I don't think about that. I don't think about, well, it was so different. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have this. No, they didn't. But they still lived life. They were still human. They still existed and had things to do, had obligations to, to, to fulfill. But here it says they were spending time devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they gathered around God's word and they were discipled. Many of you know my wife. She's a very shy wallflower. And this woman every now and then has these amazing moments of insight. And, and there was someone who was really struggling with something and, and they were debating and grappling and they were wanting to help everybody but themselves. And my wife just stopped and said, you know what? If there's ever an emergency on an airplane and the oxygen masks fall down, what's the first step? Put the mask on yourself. Why? So that you can breathe and then you can help others. The problem is if we're trying to put oxygen masks on everybody else, we're putting ourselves at risk. We're not going to be any good to anybody. And we have to have that to survive oxygen, to breathe. We cannot disciple someone if we are not being a disciple. And we're all disciples of something. I mean, it may be football, it may be extracurricular activities, it may be your job, it may be something you're fascinated about. Whatever it is, we're disciples of something. And when that thing that we put above all things takes the place of disciples of Christ, our relationship is out of order. And so we've got to get ourselves back in that order. It doesn't mean you can't have all that fun stuff. Yes, you can, as long as it's in its right boundary and in its right lane and in the right perspective. And so we've got to make sure that we gather around God's word. The second point, they say, is devoted to the fellowship. One of the most damaging distortions of the church today, I believe, if we're not careful, is we place our individual faith above corporate faith. It's symbiotic. Yes, I have to confess that Jesus is Lord. I have to believe that God raised him from the dead. I have to yield myself to make Jesus Savior and Lord. That is my responsibility in response to Christ. But I do that so that I can be part of the bride of Christ. Because he commands us to do life together, not by ourselves. And when we supersede our individual faith above the corporate faith, again, we've put ourselves in a disconnect. And so to sit there and say that they were devoted to the fellowship... They were doing life together daily. They were still going to the temple. They didn't change everything they did. They did it from a different perspective. So they're still going to the temple. They're still worshiping God. They're still engaged in a relationship with God. But they're doing it now under the, under the new perception of Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the new covenant. He's the one we follow because he's the son of God. Verse 46 Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals, to, taking their meals together 
with gladness and sincerity of heart. This is not a once a week meeting. This is not walking by going, hi, how are you? I'm fine, amen, brother. It's not that. Because there's many people in this room right now, they're not fine. They're not. Some of you are celebrating great days today. Enjoyable days. Man, it's, it's, it's the best day you've had in a long time. There are people in this room who are hurting. And if we stop long enough to say, how are you? And we really paid attention, they may tell us, I'm not good. It's a hard day. You know, just about everybody I came in contact with in the last couple of days have had a couple of questions. And the first question is, is you know, Uvalde, what do we do? Pray. We pray for those families. I mean, I can't fathom that kind of loss. We pray for the police. Doesn't matter how their response was right now. We got to pray for them. Why? Because we were not in their shoes and we're not carrying the weight they're now carrying. We need to pray for the family of that young man who was so lost, so hopeless, that became so angry and embittered that he decided the best course of action was to take out a group of small children. I mean, can you fathom that mother? He shot his grandmother, then went and took a school out. The next picture I saw was the mother sitting at the front porch of her mother's home, who's in the hospital, clinging to life, holding a rosary because she's lost her son to this tragedy. I can't fathom that kind of grief. I can't fathom that kind of loss. I can't fathom that kind of just absolute weight. The world is not a nice place. It's not. It's broken. It is unpleasant. And how someone without Jesus Christ can move forward is beyond my comprehension. But they were doing life together. Why? Because when we do life together, we're inside the relationship God called us to have. And we carry the burdens together. We celebrate the wins together. We walk through the mundane together. And that is doing life together so that we can grow closer to God and closer to one another and be who God's called us to be. Another element in this, they go to verse 45. It says they would sell their property and possessions and share with them all to anyone who had need. This is not a tie. This is people sacrificially giving above and beyond themselves to making sure anyone and everyone around them was taken care of. This is a radical kind of move that most of us have probably never experienced. And never seen. Right now, we're in a season of life that is, is, is tight. As a church, as a world, the cost of living is broaching 7 8%. Is that crazy? I mean, a, a gallon of gas costs more than a, a coffee at a local coffee shop. That's, I mean, that's, that's robbery. Granted, I can't fathom paying that much for coffee, but still, it's a price of coffee. We're in a pastoralist season. Giving is downward. Let's just be blunt. This church's financial situation right now is pretty tight. It's real tight. Um, God's going to provide, I have no doubt. As, as Dr. Hatfield had said my entire tenure with him is we've never missed a bill and never missed a payment. And that's true. But we're, we're going into a season of summer where giving is always extremely low and cost for ministry is high. 
We got to do life together. And for those of you who are currently tithing, thank you. Thank you for keeping us moving forward. For those who have not been tithing or have kind of fallen a little behind, I, I challenge you to pray and get re-engaged in that because it is an act of service. It's a part of worship. It's a part of who we are as the people. I'm off the church administrator soapbox of money. Breaking bread. They broke bread together. So they gathered around God's word and were discipled. They did life together and they ministered. Then they broke bread. This is the Baptist's favorite thing. Food. Food is an important part of doing life together. In the early church, they would do meals together. And the host was responsible for keeping everyone safe while they enjoyed dinner. But it was also an opportunity to be the most intimate. It was that opportunity to really gather together and commune with one another. But what they would do is they would take it a step further. And they would also celebrate Lord's Supper. And remember the sacrifice of Christ when they were together. They did this intentionally. It wasn't, oh, let's have a quick Lord's Supper. I've got crackers and some iced sparkling drinks. No, it was, it was intentionally planned out. It was thought through. They were going to spend time worshiping God. And so that share of intimacy, that share of meal was also an opportunity for worship. COVID hammered the church hard, right? And exacerbated some, some already some issues that the church was having universal. Corporate worship is very important. And while I am so grateful for technology that we can see it on video. So, so many of us on Memorial Day are sitting in our holy pajamas, you know, holy meaning set apart or you got a bunch of holes in them, you know, holy pajamas and you're watching it with your cup of coffee. We're not jealous of you at all, but thank you for being on, on, online with us. But there's something to be said corporately. Being together physically. So this morning in Bible study, my Bible study class found out I was preaching. So they immediately decided to gather around me, lay hands on me and pray for me or for y'all. I'm not sure which way it went, to be honest. But there were prayers going up. There was physical connection and contact. We're a tactile people. Even those of us who say we hate physical contact, okay, hate it all you want. We still need it. That interaction is vital. It's important. And so corporate worship is together. Because when we come together for corporate worship, it's not about you. Heck, it's not even about me. It's not about anybody on this stage. If we built this room correctly to, to you know, give us the visual of what it's about, there'd be one seat in the room. That's Jesus Christ's throne. The rest of us would be right here. Because it's about Christ. It's about worshiping and glorifying him. It's not about what I'm going to get out of it. Hopefully God gives us something. But the, the point is to bring him glory. And so when we do life together. And we, and we spend that time of opportunity to worship. Then it allows us to connect in ways we don't get otherwise. So I have two challenges for you this summer. Ready? You have homework. Number one. Look for a family or a couple or an individual you don't know that well. Member of our church. Invite them to dinner. Spend some time getting to know them. Love on them. Also, come to the building and worship together. Be the church. Be the church. I don't say that because you 
pay me a salary to say that. And I, I like people here because it makes me feel good. I say that because we need to be together, engaged in one another's lives, serving together, being the bride of Christ called us to be. These acts are not what gets us there. Michael made a great point last week. I took notes, Michael. Made a great point last week, and it's this. If we're not careful, we turn the means into the end, right? No, those are the vehicles to get to the end. And what is the end? The end is to love God, love people, and make disciples. So the final thing to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. We find in the Acts church praying together. We have prayer opportunities on Mondays, Tuesdays, Fridays. We do house of prayer worship experiences. We have people praying before this service, during this service. Some of you are praying for me to end right now. I mean, I get it. We do life together and we pray together. But this isn't an intercession of please pray for this person or please pray for that person. As many of you know, and for those who don't, my father was attacked by bees a couple of weeks ago. Yes, his name is Wayne Cotton, and things happen to people named Wayne Cotton. That's just what happens. And so, so he was attacked by bees. And so as my father tried to make his way from the back of the property, he fell a few times, got up here, got safe. And so we put a prayer request out, and you guys have been praying for him like crazy. He is doing well. He's actually here today. And if you meet him, those are not the swellings from the bee sting. That's just who he is. So be gentle to the man, Okay. But you have been praying for my family, especially for my father, and I, kind of, I want to say thank you. But with the prayer I'm talking about here is not just that kind of prayer. It's praying for us to be who we are, who we're called to be, and where we're supposed to go as the bride of Christ and as individuals. It's a prayer of moving us forward. It's an engagement of being there for one another. So what is the church from 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem have to teach us. You know, it's not a church that arrived. It didn't have all the answers. They were living out the Great Commission. They were living out the Great Commandment. They were trying to do what God taught them to do as Christ on earth. So it's not the perfect pattern for all we do today. But if we can become a church that not only loves God and loves people, but we actively go and make disciples... What would this world look like starting from Louisville forward? It could be something amazing. See, revival doesn't start with large crowds. The greatest awakenings in, in spiritual revival didn't happen because people were religious or the crowds got faithful. It happened because some individuals got serious about being a disciple of Christ and it radically changed the world. Jesus Christ t- trusted 12 men that the rest of us wouldn't give a second thought to. And look where we are today in Louisville, Texas. It's really amazing when you think about it, that God can use us in spite of ourselves. So I want to challenge you this week. How are you going to devote yourself to the apostles' teachings? How are you going to devote yourself to the fellowship? How are you going to devote yourself to breaking of bread? And how are you going to devote yourself to prayer as the church, not as individuals? As the church. I want to do this not out of obligation for God, but because we love God, a God who saved us for all eternity.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you loved us so deeply and so richly that you sacrificed all for us. You started the covenant. You started the interaction in the relationships. We have to respond. And so, Father, I pray for today that we will respond to your word, that we will become the people you call us to be, that we can be the church, the bride of Christ that you want us to be, so that we can serve you out of love. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in this next moment of worship, what I challenge you guys to do is this. There are several opportunities to respond this morning, and all the responses are forms of worship. If you are ready today to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, do you want to become a Christ follower? There's ministers down front. We would love to pray with you and walk you through some of that. If you are a child of God, you are a Christ follower, but you've not been the disciple that God's called you to be, the altar's open. There's also ministers here to pray with you. I challenge you. There's no shame in coming forward and laying at the altar and saying, God, it's all yours. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We're not perfect. Not by any means. But man, I love this place. It's a good church. And we love people. So I would challenge you. Come, be part of our family. Finally, this is kind of a goofy one. We've got these little gold frisbees that we call offering plates. We're going to take an offering while you're standing in an invitation. Why? Because it's a response to worship. It's not about the money. I want to give us an opportunity to respond to God, even by being faithful financially. So as you guys stand with us, let's enter this time into invitation. It's a response opportunity. And I pray that you worship God in this response. So I encourage you, respond as you feel that.